Hello again and welcome to Ken Drew's Real Dirt, Gardening 2.0. My guest is one of the most influential people working in landscape architecture today. It's Daryl Morrison. The definition of a mentor is someone who teaches or gives help and advice to a less experienced person. That word is used a bit too often these days. I can say that Daryl Morrison is a mentor who has influenced hundreds, if not thousands of students, amateurs and professionals, whether for their own home garden or pursuing a career in landscape design and architecture, and in many cases changing the path of their work, if not their lives. He has been a champion of native and natural design and not just growing plants that are local to a place, but creating, recreating, and preserving the habitat and plant communities that once flourished there in a beautiful way. He has designed landscapes at Storm King Art Center, the Chicago Botanic Garden, Ladybird Wildflower Center, Utah Botanical Center, and the recently opened Native Flora Extension at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. He was most recently the adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Continuing Education, program in landscape design from 2007 to 2014. And Daryl will be participating in the Hollister House Garden Study Weekend on September 6th through 7th, 2014, in partnership with the Garden Conservancy. And we'll have a link to that event on the Kendrews Real Dirt webpage. Welcome, Daryl, to Kendrews Real Dirt. Hi, Ken. Hi. <laughs> I know that that was my 20-page uh, introduction, which I shortened to one page. <laughs> Great. <laughs> because there's so many things. Have you ever been to Hollister House? No, this will be my first time there, and it's, I look forward to it. It is a magnificent garden, really, mm -hmm. with lots of ideas. That's one thing Great. about it. I mean, it's, there's, it's really a lot of garden rooms, as people overuse that term, but that really is what it is. And the... Just one beautiful thing after another. It's a great, great American garden, and it's a, it's a very popular. It's only the fourth year, I think, of the symposium, but it's really, really popular. But we're talking mm -hmm. about you. <laughs> so oh. since we're talking about you, uh, mm -hmm. let's start on the Iowa farm. Tell me about the farm in Iowa and growing up a little bit. Okay. Well, I grew up in what would have been a typical Iowa farm in the mostly in the 40s and 50s. 160 acres, a quarter section. We had we had beef cattle, dairy cattle, hogs, chickens, corn, soybeans, alfalfa, pastures. Very diverse farm. And as I think about it, it was really an organic farm because my dad didn't use chemical fertilizers. Um, we essentially recycled uh, waste from the animals as a fertilizer. Uh, had a very big vegetable garden with zinnias and marigolds and gladioli growing among the vegetables. Um, and actually, when I was a little kid, my, our parents gave each of the three sons our own little plot in which we could plant things. And I think that may have set me on the trajectory that got me where I am now. Because I would do, initially I did traditional rows of radishes and carrots and lettuce. And then I started doing circular patches and <laughs> all sorts of patterns. Uh, so I was I was designing at an early age. <laughs> well, and I know you've done a, a garden maze with prairie grasses. Right, right. The University of Wisconsin Arboretum native plant garden, right. Well, uh, the, you mentioned Wisconsin, and that makes me think of the Curtis Prairie, which I had the pleasure and honor to visit probably, oh, more than 10 years ago, maybe 15, mm -hmm. actually probably more than 15 years ago. But right. what what a sight. That must have meant a lot to you when you first saw that. Oh, yeah. It was 
a real uh, real eye-opening experience when I arrived in Madison for grad school in 1967. And the first course I took was one in plant ecology, and we had field work in the Arboretum, including work at Curtis Prairie and Green Prairie. And that really did open my eyes to uh, the beauty of the prairie. While I'd grown up in Iowa, which at one time was all prairie, by the time I was growing up, the, the prairie earth had been turned over and planted in corn and soybeans, so I didn't really see prairie vegetation until I saw the restorations at the UW Arboretum. Well, uh, you've said that people start to appreciate nature through the pretty elements, uh, and that's certainly evident there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I have, over the years, taught many field field courses with students from landscape architecture or other fields. And repeatedly, I see people first being attracted to the, the colorful flowers, so they, they see the pretty. Aldo Leopold has a quote about that, namely that uh, people first come to value nature through the pretty and then com can move on to whole new levels of understanding. And I saw that happen with students very often. We would see the, the pretty flowers, the ones that were showy, say, in a prairie, and then uh, start to see the patterns that those plants made. And then you start to think about the processes that led to those patterns. And this, this goes on to giving you the, the, the hope that you can protect, preserve, and bring back some of that beauty. Do you feel that you, one of the things you want to do is, is glorify nature? I don't think I'm capable of glorifying <laughs> nature. <laughs> I think it's about as good as it gets, but I hope I can distill some of the some of the beauty of nature and native plant communities in oftentimes much smaller spaces. So I guess maybe rather than glorify, I would say I like the idea of celebrating nature in design places. When I think of your work and I think of what I've seen over time and I think of how how difficult it has been, in especially in years past, to convince people to do this. Indeed. Uh, and, then, and then you work on a site and you get it done and it's magnificent and maybe the CEO of a corporation changes and they just, uh -huh. they don't want that anymore. They, they want a place for the cat they, they extend the cafeteria into what used to be a, a <laughs> restoration of prairie or something um the future of a landscape that you work on is often out of your hands and we can talk about how that's changed but uh, how did that well i can I, I can understand how that made you feel but what was that like i mean i guess nature is changing all the time but it's kind of a not very nice when someone else messes <laughs> it up right yeah well, uh, I like to say the only thing constant in, in nature is change. Mm. But I do have a couple of very vivid examples of work that I did which which was thwarted by subsequent construction um, at an insurance company in Madison, Wisconsin. I did my first prairie planting, basically. It was uh, about two acres of undulating band of native grasses surrounding a lawn area. And, by the way, I was on the, the radical fringe in 1972 when we did that, uh, and a lot of people wondered a bit about it. I think you um, were before the radical <laughs> fringe. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, uh, 
the decision was made when it was about, I guess, five to seven years old and was really looking good uh, to build an underground parking garage where that had been. And, of course, I felt bad about that, but then I also recognized that I had learned a lot from it and had shown people some possibilities that they didn't know exist. So it was a net gain, I think, uh, and and I've had similar experiences, but we learn something from each one, and then we can apply it in the next one. Well, you you make me think of how many parking garages are under prairies today <laughs> in design. Right. That right. They could have just put it back. Although, well, right, <laughs> indeed. I'm sure they didn't. Well, they put back some small portion of it. Well, that's good. <laughs> Uh, people, and I, I shouldn't say people in a pejorative way, but many Americans or people all over the world, really, they, they like a landscape to be static, and they want something that's really exterior design, outdoor decoration, right. but that's right. so anti-nature. Uh, talk about breaking away from paving and the use of, well, and how people use a handful of conventional plants. I mean, it's still, you know. <laughs> And how oh, about yeah. that red mulch? <laughs> oh, that red mulch. <laughs> yeah, well, one thing I observe is that people like what they know. Mm. And uh, a lot of people just think that you are expected to have clipped hedges and clipped lawns and, and isolated trees. Uh, with very little diversity and very little change. And I, as a, as a designer, something I like to think of about landscape design, landscape architecture, is that it is a, it is a four-dimensional art mm-hmm. in that we have time as the fourth dimension and that it can and should change over time within certain spatial framework that we might establish. And so I'm, I'm very happy in a design I do if I see a certain amount of plant reproduction, plant migration, uh, change in patterns over time because the plants are telling us where they want to be. Uh, and so, yes, the, the tradition is static, unchanging gardens, and that is such a loss when we have such potential to, to have a changing landscape, one that will be different in the fall than it is in the spring, one that will be different one year from now than it is now, and one that will be even more different 10 years from now or 50. Um, The work of Jens Jensen, Danish-born landscape architect, has always influenced me once I became familiar with his work. And I look at some of his projects right after they were planted, and, and then I see pictures of them 50 years later, and it's just wonderful how that evolution can occur. And, of course, there's management along the way, partly because of all of the invasive exotics that we humans have introduced into the landscape. So we we're always always have to be on guard against those introduced invasive species taking over either our designed areas or our true natural areas and diminishing the diversity therein. Well, you... You, what you're making me think of as you're talking about this is I'm, I'm picturing a job, I'm picturing mm-hmm. a site, and then besides the invasive species, which that's a whole, you know, we could talk for hours about right. that, right. but there's also succession. 
Right. And do you want the landscape you created to look a certain way? You know, we don't want it to be static completely. And you've written about dynamic landscapes and landscapes that mm -hmm. have changed over time. Mm -hmm. uh, but so do you do you try to achieve a certain balance as far as succession? Or do you think we, we should do a burn to, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Certainly. And maybe the best case in point that I can think of right now among my recent work is the old stone mill at the New York Botanical Garden next to the Bronx River. And there I had pretty much a blank slate other than two existing sycamore trees on this uh, three-quarter acre site. And in it I placed drifts of gray birches, early successional trees that come sort of drifting down the hillside. But then I have consciously kept certain spaces open, so we have a view of the beautiful stone bridge over the over the river from um, looking between clumps of birches, and then we have uh, oh, a view from the, the terrace behind the stone mill. And so I would be very happy if there is tree succession under the birches. The birches are early successional. And in nature, they would be replaced over time by oaks and, and other species. Uh, however, in this case, it is a design where we purposely want to keep some views open. So I would pr promote succession in the, quote, wooded areas. But I would, I would eliminate tulip poplars and mulberries and other things that come up in the open spaces that, that uh, provide the views. So it's it's different even within one site. Uh, I don't I won't feel bad. I don't feel bad if people don't recognize that it was designed. If they feel like it's just the way it should be, mm -hmm. but I also recognize that to have the the features that are so desirable, we need to uh, suppress succession in some places and maybe encourage it in others. A, a hand of man, people might say, <laughs> right? A exactly. human participation in in making a kind of art. It's interesting right. that you're talking about a woodland, and or a, you know, in the in the New York area, this is a place with a lot of rain. Uh, right. More than people realize, people think that Seattle, Washington, gets all the rain in the country, <laughs> mm, <laughs> but right. we have more in the New York area than they do out there. So uh, when I when I think of your work, I think of prairies and mm -hmm. tall grass tall grasses but uh, of mm -hmm. course that's not what we would want <laughs> in, right in the right. east so the work i do in montana looks very different from the work i do in new york and connecticut as it should <laughs> well you worked on the brooklyn botanic garden most recently and right. uh, and with uli lorimer who's right. a very great gardener i've known for quite a while and to me, th there's the whole thing about native plants and regional plants and indigenous plants and what I like to think of for myself, local plants. Right. And that garden considers that. At the New York Botanical Garden, they opened a native plant garden about the same time, re quite recently. And it is very beautiful, but it's not about local. So uh, how do you feel about those things? Well... I'm I'm really thrilled by and excited by the Brooklyn Botanic Garden uh, Native Flora Garden Extension that we opened a year ago, partly because it is truly local species. The the plants that uh, 
were propagated by Greenbelt Nursery were grown from seed that was collected within a pretty small radius, either from uh, New Jersey Pine Barrens or, or uh, Long Island or Staten Island. And so I really like the idea that these are truly native. Uh, I think in regard to the maybe more showy garden at the Bronx, uh, New York Botanical Garden, as long as it is interpreted to the public that it's a much wider geographic area that's being represented and that there are cultivars of, of native species in the native garden, I think that's okay, and, and I know people love it, but I do think it needs to be interpreted that way so that the general public knows what they're seeing. Right. As you're saying that, I'm thinking it, there's a Japanese garden, and this could be the North American garden as opposed mm -hmm. to the native plant garden. Mm -hmm. And I always have a pro right. problem with that because do we want to grow a California native in Maryland, it doesn't really make sense. Just because right. it comes from North America, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Right. And I can't help th think about Norway maples and <laughs> Jens Jensen, oh. but that's another story. Because <laughs> Norway, Indeed. when I had my garden in Brooklyn until recently, Norway maples in Brooklyn are one of the scourges of that. <laughs> right. And and that makes me think of something else, which is uh, the nursery industry and the plants mm -hmm. that they sell. And you mentioned invasive plants before. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that in my experience, most of the horrible invasive plants, I think, came by accident. And mm -hmm. often people say, oh, well, they came with the nursery industry or they came from uh, intentionally. And some, of course, did. And some were brought mm -hmm. by the USDA right. for various right. reasons. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of them were accidents. I don't know where I'm going with this <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but what about what what could what have you thought about what we possibly could do to enlighten the nursery industry to to maybe stop selling certain plants that we know are problematic? A good question. Um, I guess my hope is that through giving talks, I can help convince the the public that we need to stop doing that and hope that that will bring some pressure on the people who produce, produce and sell the plants. Uh, and then, again, if we can show that truly native planting can be at least as beautiful and oftentimes, in my opinion, much more beautiful than the standard narrow range of plants, maybe that will have an effect. I used to get comments sometimes. I lived in Georgia for several years, and... Uh, people would say to me, aren't you limiting yourself so much just working just working with native plants? And I said, well, you've got to remember, in Georgia, we have 3,300 species of <laughs> native plants, and we're using maybe 100 of them. <laughs> so diversity is such a, is so valuable for many, many reasons, including the, uh, the birds, butterflies, bumblebees that are attracted to a diversity of plant species. And we just got to get out of the habit of using the same 10 species. And actually, through confessions time, I started working in uh, the 1960s in Washington, D.C., and I worked in an office where we essentially were using the same 10 species mm -hmm. over and over, Japanese holly, Chinese holly, crepe myrtle, thornless honey locust, over and over, along with thousands of vinca minor and English ivy. And I, I participated but then I actually I ran into this great book, American Plants for American Gardens, 
by Edith Roberts, an ecologist, and Elsa Raymond, uh, a landscape architect. And it really opened my eyes to the potential of, of native plant communities distilled in, in the, native, in the uh, designed landscape. And so that, that was a revelation. And, and increasingly, I value diversity in, in the plantings that I do. And, and uh, well, both the Brooklyn Botanic Garden is the most diverse planting I've done, probably, with 150 species having been planted. Um, and it just increases the, the beauty and the value so much. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about a little bit about back to the nursery industry, and I, I guess one of the biggest problems is all native plants don't bloom on Mother's Day. Right. And that's kind of a problem. So that's back to education. I, I found that when I lectured on native and local plants and different plant communities, 100% of the people in the audience were with it, but then they'd go mm -hmm. home and only 5% were changed by it or influenced by it and I guess that's mm -hmm. because of the conventional looks but also a kind of a fear a fear of maintenance mm -hmm. maybe yeah yeah that that enters into it and the maintenance the first year at Brooklyn Botanic Garden Native Flora Garden was challenging because basically Uli and I could weed mm -hmm. <laughs> because we knew what we had planted and, and but a volunteer in general would not be able to differentiate between some of the things we planted and some of the things that we didn't really want there. So it's not an easy thing. Well, and it's not an, it, that's interesting. It's, it's, you're right, it's not easy, but it's also, it's just part of it. Right, right. <laughs> it's right. part of what you have to do, especially with, for want of a better term, right this minute, native plants. Mm -hmm. uh, people often think, well, natives should be carefree because they live on their own in the wild. Mm -hmm. So why should, right. you know, you just plug them in. And, right. and of course, like any other plants, or even more than some other plants, the, the, that establishment period of one or two years is crucial. Right, right. And there's oftentimes bare space between the plants initially, and bare spaces invite opportunistic mm -hmm. plants to come in which we may not want in the picture. And then you don't want to mulch with giant pieces of bark either. No, <laughs> definitely not. Plant Especially in a grassland, in a, in a meadow or prairie, you don't want wood chips from the forest. So, well, we don't have much time left, but and I should mention that I'm speaking with Daryl Morrison, who will be himself part of participating in the Hollister House Garden Study Weekend on September 6th through 7th, 2014. And uh, I mean, we could talk about so many things, and we really feel Indeed. it feels like we've just gotten started. Uh, you've written that people begin to recognize the composition in a design, patterns, processes that have led to the processes, why things are where they are, how you can perpetuate that, utilize that idea, protecting, preserving, and restoring those qualities in the landscapes we are responsible for. And I think that as human beings and gardeners and nature lovers, that this is a direction for us. And you've, you lecture so much to so many people. And as I mentioned when we started, you have been a mentor to so many people. I bet that makes you feel young <laughs> in a way. Generally, yes. <laughs> At least you're with those people. That, that's a right. wonderful thing. It is. I, and it's great. For, it works both ways. I mean, they stimulate me as well. So that's great. That is great. Well, uh, 
you're a giant in the industry, if I even say that, and in the art. And we didn't get a chance to talk about music. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, music can be another great inspiration. And art, and uh, and even drawing designs on the fly in the middle of a lecture. But I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you, as always. Well, and thank you, Ken. You're so welcome. I enjoyed it, too. If you go to the KenDrewsRealDirt.com website, you're going to find a link to a wonderful short film with Daryl, about Daryl and some of his work. And uh, Google him. You're going to learn so much and find out so much information about gardening and landscaping with native plants, native plant communities, and habitat types and conserving habitat types, especially the tall grass prairie. Join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Gardening 2.0.